Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. That's me. Eric Ostrich. Howdy. And today we're joined by our special guest, Parker Selbert. Hey, everybody. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Parker, thank you for coming on. And I, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about uh, kind of who you are and what you're doing and maybe a little bit about your experience with Elixir. Sure. Um, so my name's Parker Selbert, as mentioned before. I live in the Chicago area and I run a consultancy with my wife. Uh, it's called uh, Soren. We started that back in 2008 um, and have been helping various people around the world, primarily in Chicago ever since then. So started off doing a lot of work in Rails, uh, as so many of us in the Elixir community did. And then back around the time that the uh, Seven Languages in Seven Weeks came out, uh, read about Erlang, started trying to get into Erlang, and uh, just couldn't, couldn't do it. And so later, when I heard about Elixir, this would be pre 1.0, just kind of started jumping in and did a whole bunch of different exercises with it and uh, thought it was great. So I've been in the community in some way, either writing libraries or talking to people or just building things ever since then. And so it's been about six years or so now. Nice. All right. Well, we wanted to invite you on today because you've created this library that was new to me. Uh, it's called Oban. I, I presume you pronounce it that way. Uh, I do pronounce it that way, although I've learned somewhat recently in a funny kind of way that that's not how I'm supposed to pronounce it. It's actually more like Oban. Uh, so right. on another rival podcast, uh, Chris McCord was on there and he sort of gave it as a pick or like as something that he had been tracking. And instead of saying Oban, like I expected, he said Oban. And then uh, there's another guy from the UK who's on the podcast who just kind of rolled with it. So I've learned since then <laughs> that it's not like a soft A, it's like Oban. But well, I think I, as a maintainer, you kind of decide how you want it to be spoken. I, I think the people of Scotland uh, who, who live in Oban Okay. And uh, have the scotch. They, they kind of get to choose. So. Nice. All right. Well, maybe that would be a good opportunity for you to kind of introduce what this library is and kind of why you created it. Sure. Uh, so Oban is a background, it's a persistent background job library. So it would be akin to um, Sidekick or, well, not exactly. That's kind of jumping ahead. 
Um, it's a way to reliably run background jobs by persisting them in the database first. And so in this case, the database, instead of it being Redis, is Postgres. Um, so for a long time, um, had been in the Ruby world using uh, Rescue and then Sidekick, and then um, starting to move production applications over into Elixir, um, looked around at what was there and found that either it lacked really important features, uh, things like XQ had been around for a long time, but they didn't integrate completely with Sidekick. Um, and so a really important aspect was that could keep half of a system in Ruby and then new parts of the system in Elixir and then actually have them interplay. So you could see which jobs are running because that's a really big part of, of monitoring all that and knowing what your system's doing. Um, so initially I had ported parts of Sidekick into a Elixir library called Kick, uh, which really it replicated just everything possible in Sidekick and then a little bit of Sidekick Pro and Sidekick Enterprise, like things that unique jobs and other things that aren't normally available. Um, and that process was very time consuming and really educational, but showed where there were a lot of weaknesses actually in using a Redis system. Um, so that's what spurred sort of a spike in trying to figure out if there was a better way to do it. And um, so if you look around all of the different languages, um, so Python, Ruby, JavaScript, there's some type of library there that uses a a relational database like Postgres to store jobs instead of using something like Redis. And so I jumped into that. Um, and so that started off as a spike. So I'm curious as to why you feel there's a benefit to having it in like your, your Postgres database over something like Redis. Sure. Um, I think there are a few. There's one that's kind of funny, uh, which is people in the Elixir community, and I think the Erlang community too, really, it's not that they have an issue with Redis, but they just don't want to have other things. So we've sort of accepted, yes, the Beam and the ecosystem can do everything, but we really want to use something like Postgres. Whereas other things like a caching layer, a PubSub layer, uh, the things that Redis normally brings in, people just don't necessarily want to go there. So that's kind of the funny one, is that we have this aversion to using Redis. Um, but the more sort of serious ones is that, uh, Background jobs, while they might seem sort of inconsequential, most of the systems I've worked in, all the really important work that the system's doing is actually happening in background jobs. So whether that's something related to sending email or machine learning or billing people or whatever it is, those are things that you absolutely don't want to lose once you have a production system that people are paying for, it's, just, it's not okay to lose them. Um, so you end up going through a lot of hoops in Redis uh, just because of the way that it works. So it can persist things to disk, but if you want to use it like a queue, you have to use a list. And if you're using a list, it means you push things in the list and you pop things out of the list. And if you want to make sure that you don't lose it, if the system crashes or if something happens, that means you have to put it in some other type of list that just holds it. And it's like your background list. And so there's just a lot of complication. And that's something that if you're using a, something like Postgres, you just get that for free. That's just what it does. It's a table, it stores things, and you know that there's all this safety and uh, you can replicate it and you don't have any, any worries. Um, and then the other thing that builds on top of that is that when I have a series of business steps, like I want to sign up for an account and I want to sign up for a plan, we're manipulating things in the database. And then we have these side effects that we want to have happen. And 
I'm sure we've all experienced in some way, you push it into a, like a Redis queue and it tries to send an email before the transaction's even finished. And then you have a, a job failure or the transaction rolls back, but the job got in queued anyway. And so if it's all going into the same place in a single transaction, you don't have any of those concerns. That is a big one right there, uh, which is the <laughs> transactional nature of it. Because like, I just want to kind of highlight that you said it really well. I just want to make sure it's absolutely clear for you, dear listener, just like the idea of like, I've got a series of steps. I like an act in Elixir, I maybe I'm using, I'm probably using Ecto and I'm using like a multi and I'm saying, you know, insert, you know, create the new user, create an account, create uh, some related billing in uh, table records. And at some point I might hit a something that says, you know, uh, send a new welcome email as a background job, send, you know, create a, a, billing account with my, you know, QuickBooks online, whatever it is, you know, like I'm doing all these other things that are outside of my system that have those side effects you're talking about. And one of the, then a later step may fail. And if it fails, either I've got to let things fail and be in a partially completed state, or maybe I just do it all in a single transaction. And what you're talking about there is that if I, if I put them all in a single transaction and my queue is in Redis, those queue items still exist and they'll still be worked on. They may fail, they may complete, depending on what the, the nature of the job is. So it might send out an email about an account that was never created. Uh, and so the idea of having it all in a single transaction so that the transaction crosses into my job queue, uh, rolls those back to any side effects that are created for that. So I think that's a really interesting point there. So I first learned about uh, Oban as a library uh, because you were, creating a lot of blog articles or recipes and talking about how you can use it to solve different types of uh, problems. Uh, so maybe you can just kind of talk a little bit about uh, how this, um, like what kinds of recipes you think are really well suited, what kind of jobs this is a, a good fit for, and maybe even what is it not a good fit for so people can kind of figure out where in their system this might be a good fit. Sure. Um, so when I initially announced Omen on the Elixir forum, it got a lot of feedback, uh, it was, which is a lot of fun. And as part of that, people would ask a question about, can I use Open to do this? Like to send something in the future, to send something uh, repeatedly in the future. Uh, can I, how do I do this um, and make sure that I don't have duplicates within the one hour that I'm trying to do this? And so people kept asking questions on the forum and then also on the issue tracker. And I would respond. And usually those responses would take me quite a bit of time to write just because I'm recommending some code and I have to go type out the code and then make sure that I have a little sample thing and that it really works. And I realized when I was doing that, that I'm effectively writing blog posts, uh, but they're sort of in this hundred post long, you know, little bit on the forum. And most people probably aren't going to find this in the future. And so I thought, well, I should start just putting these up as blog posts and then trying to get a little bit more formality to it. And um, initially it started off, I had just five ideas and I put them in a single post. And then they started getting too long and I realized this is way too much for a single post. I'll just turn this into a series. And so as I started writing those, people would ask other questions and it kept going. So as of right now, there are seven recipes out there and um, I have ideas for four more that hopefully I can get around to sometime in the future. But um, so, I think everything that somebody has asked about, uh, every different use case, and I can get into some of the, some of the use cases, um, but it's been a pretty good fit for the system. Um, so some of those have been, I want to 
you know, some of them are kind of typical, I'm, I don't mean typical, but pro or enterprise-y kind of things like guaranteed uniqueness um, of jobs. So based on arguments or based on random, random values like that. So let's start off with some, like the first one, the first post is unique jobs, uh, which is something that there was sort of a, a hack around as far as I could think of. And Open makes it possible in a much easier way compared to other libraries where they throw the jobs away afterwards because it's still just a database table. And as long as you have proper indexes and you're considerate about how you do your queries and how you scope things, you can really tell, have I ran this job in the past day? Have I ran it in the past hour? And um, am I running two at the same time? You know all of these things because you're, you're looking in one central place and it's a database and not just some sort of on the fly type of queue. So that kind of kicked it off. And an interesting thing started happening is that I would write it and then there would be discussion about it and somebody would ask me more about it. And then that might turn into fixing a feature or adding a feature um, or just sort of evolving things. So a fair number of the posts have led into additional feature development or just edits to say, no, look, this is really a better way to, to go about it. Some of the things that people have asked about, which is around batch processing, particularly the type of thing that you would do with GenStage or Broadway, where say I have this bulk of hundreds of thousands of records or thousands and thousands of pieces of media, and I want to batch them and spread those batches across as many workers as I can and just work through all of it. Open's not really very well suited for that, in my experience so far. I have been approached, I shouldn't say approached, but I've been, uh, Jose has mentioned to me about, you know, if you did it like this, you could just have this be a producer uh, for Broadway. And so I'm going to look into that and maybe try to benchmark and see if that's even something that people would want to do in a sane way. Um, but and so far, it seems to be fast and reliable for just about everything that I've tried or had people trying. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. So one thing that I'm, I'm curious about, um, are you using any of the, like the, the cool features of Postgres where like you can be notified when a new in table is inserted or updated, um, or is it just like there's a worker that's polling for new jobs? Uh, sure, so the way Open is architected, um, there are a few, I mean, it's all, it's all processes, of course, but each queue is a supervision tree. And in the supervision tree, there's a producer, uh, and that producer has a few responsibilities, um, one of which is to receive updates from the database. So it's a, it subscribes to notifications, uh, and it listens for anything that happens to be on its particular queue. 
And when jobs are inserted, even if they're inserted in, in bulk, it will be notified that it needs to check for existing jobs. There is some funny behavior with uh, Postgres PubSub or Postgres notifications, and that for any particular, like I can insert 10 jobs, but I'll only get one notification based on whatever the arguments are. So the producer sort of balances between polling, which it needs to do to be able to handle scheduling jobs. You know, if you want to try to queue something up every second, you need to poll every second. Um, and so it maintains a set of demand. So based on how many jobs it's currently running up to this, up to a limit, it will either pull for more or be notified that there are more and it will get more and try to run them. Um, and that was initially based on GenStage, uh, but there are some things, there are internals of GenStage that you can't dynamically scale GenStage up and down. So if I have a queue that's running 10 and I notice it's getting backed up, in Open you can just say scale queue and you can say bump it up to 20 or 30 in parallel. And GenStage didn't support that. Um, it also wouldn't let you run one. And so for some things, you might only want to have one. You know, you're trying to enforce um, a really strict kind of rate limiting. And so there are a few things where it just didn't work. So if I have a clustered application and I, and I have a queue that can run 10, if I have two nodes, does both of them run 10? Or do they figure out that they should both only run five? Like, how does that work? Um, so everything is in isolation. It uses Postgres to communicate, um, and it does a fair bit of communication with uh, another table called Open Beats, and that's really just for tracking. It doesn't try to use that to get consensus or to coordinate. Um, and also, I, I had initially considered that, like, what if I set something, I've got two nodes and I set it to 15. Is one eight and one seven? Do I run two eights? What if somebody really wanted only 15? So. Uh, it just runs, if you set it to 10 and you have three nodes in your cluster, you're going to run 30. It, it's kind of like that. And I assume there's probably some type of database locking or something to prevent uh, the same job from being pulled out on multiple nodes. Sure. Uh, so it uses a really great feature, which I think is from the early 9.2, 9 9.3 in Postgres, uh, which is select for update. and skip locked. So uh, what it will do is it will very quickly scan through and look, do I have any available jobs within my queue? And if there are, immediately flag it as being taken by me, uh, me being the producer of a particular queue. And so that transaction is really, really fast and it marks them. But because of that part skip locked, it will immediately ignore if another node has tried to grab onto those. So there's no contention when you're running through a whole bunch and you have multiple producers trying to pull them out. Um, there are other libraries like uh, Q for Ruby. Um, they use transaction locks, so advisory locks in Postgres to try to wrap it to say something is holding on to that particular job. Um, one of the downsides of doing that is the transaction lock goes away when your trans transaction goes away. And of course, your transaction holds a connection the whole time. And so if I'm trying to do something, say I'm transcoding a video, or I need to do some big email blast, and that happens to take 10 or 15 minutes, that means I have a 15-minute transaction. And so by avoiding transactional advisory locks, or really that kind of lock at all, we move through the queue really fast, and any particular job can take as long as you want. without. That's fantastic. Yeah. 
which was have, kind of a deal breaker. I had I had run into that issue with advisory locks, but I hadn't I wasn't aware that advisory locks were were the issue and having all the connection open. I just knew oh, I got to do this differently. Yeah, well, that's so that's transactional advisory locks. There are also like regular advisory locks, which Open used for quite a while just to make sure that um, jobs could be rescued. So if I start a job and it takes a long time and then my node crashes or you try to restart the node, you want to be sure that that job, when you start back up, it doesn't think that it's finished. It's not just left in limbo. So it was using these transactional, sorry, not transactional, regular advisory locks to mark those. Um, and that became an issue because you can only release a lock with the connection that took the lock. And in a system where you're running with an ecto pool and you've got say 10 to however many, 30 connections, you have a one in 10 or a one in 30 chance that the next time you get a connection from the pool, that it's actually the one that you were using. And so what I discovered or what other people who are running open discovered is that when they were running through millions of jobs in a day and they were randomly not getting the right connection to unlock things, they would have gigabytes of logs saying, warning, this transaction can't, uh, this, uh, this lock can't be released by this connection. It doesn't own it. So that really prompted moving away from advisory locks altogether uh, to avoid that problem. Well, that leads really well into my question, which is, uh, which you've kind of started addressing there, which is like the maturity of the project, because we know just from experience as developers, the longer a system is in production and the, the, the larger it scales, the more edge cases like that we run into. So just as a developer on my own project, I have to think about the maturity of a project when I bring it in as a dependency. Is this something I can count on? Is this battle tested or is this more experimental? And so I can treat it appropriately. Uh, just so I can say, yes, I've built up my own degree of confidence with it. So now I can do something more with it. So I just wonder if you could speak to uh, kind of like uh, the level of usage that it has and its uh, maturity in that way. Sure. So usage has been climbing pretty steadily. Um, I'm, <laughs> I check about once a week just to see what, what's it look like for the past week? What, how many downloads does it have? And so that's been trending upwards, um, but I also notice from people talking to me about it uh, or sending emails or asking questions on the forum that it's gotten a pretty good amount of production usage. Some, like I mentioned before, some people are running it on systems that run millions or tens of millions of jobs a day. So it's scaling really well in that way. Um, and for the uh, UI project, which I hope we can talk about later, there's a stream of randomly generated jobs that it runs. Um, and it's run tens of millions of those without errors. Or when there have been little errors, um, say uh, you're trying to store something that should be a big int, but it's in a small int container, uh, things like that, it's starting to catch. But there have definitely been people who have reported bugs, uh, which are sort of scaly kind of bugs, like I mentioned before with the advisory locks. Most of those have been ironed out. Um, there was recently one where somebody had turned off pruning, which I, I, I can't get into too much. Uh, just, but the idea is you don't want to keep all jobs around forever. You got to clear them out after a while. The same thing with the beats, uh, which is like heartbeats. Um, they had all pruning off. And when they turned it back on, they had so many beats that it couldn't delete that in a single transaction. Um, and so the pruning for jobs had a window, a window so it would only do 10,000 at a time. I had never considered that somebody would have 
pruning off for so long that they would have millions and millions of beats, but they did. And so just recently, there's the ability to limit how many beats you delete at one time. So there are little things like that, that once you get these really large scale kind of projects, you might run into edge cases, but they're becoming fewer and far between. And I know a lot of different companies are running these and are running open in production and doing so very successfully. Great. And that was one of my other questions was about like deleting old jobs, because I do agree with you. Like there is value in having at least a window of like the past uh, 30 days or something like that, just so I can see uh, how am I trending? How are my jobs? Do I have consistent failures? Are they, you know, kind of bottlenecking and just kind of identifying those things. Uh, but yeah, then the question is, is like, how do I make sure that, you know, it's a Postgres database table. I don't want it to grow infinitely large. So like, is that, that's a built-in thing then I, I, I guess then that I can say in a configuration, I say prune at this uh, record count or age, or how do I do that? Uh, you can actually do both. So I, I think I alluded before that um, Oben was sort of a spike on trying to rebuild the kick system. Um, and I initially was trying to do it with streams. So Redis streams, which are based on Kafka streams, and they have a, I, this notion of there's a central stream and then you have consumers of the stream. So you can think of consumers as being uh, the queues. And one of the things that you do is you, it has to acknowledge that it's read something and after a while it will discard them or prune them um, so that there's a backlog of things that you've already consumed, uh, but beyond say a thousand or 10,000, um, which is always number-based, it would get rid of them. And so that was one of the things that I wanted to bring in to Oban and how we had sort of replicated streams in a, in a slight way inside of Postgres. Um, but it isn't always that you want to keep a certain number. Like I could have a system that doesn't happen to run that many jobs, but they're spread out over a really long window of time. So there are a few configuration options. You can say, I wanted to clear out jobs that are older than a certain time in seconds, or um, you can do it by a raw number. Most people seem to be doing it by time, but I know sometimes based on performance, uh, especially if you're using a lot of unique locks, people are doing it by number. They just don't want more than say 10,000 old jobs, that kind of thing. Cool, well, I think that's a, a good segue into uh, how might I want to visualize uh, what's in my queues, like how many are concurrently, how many have failed and are we trying? And you know, so like, I know that there's, you're doing something unique and kind of unusual, uh, which I think is great. It's a wonderful experiment and I want to, I hope it's successful. But why don't you tell us about the UI that exists and what you're doing that's unique with that? Sure, so once people started using Oban, um, I think almost everybody immediately asked about a UI. So there was an issue that was open right away, uh, which got the most emojis I've ever seen on one of my issues, uh, like thumbs upping or hearting or something. Uh, which was just asking about the UI. And I, so I kept saying that I was working on UI and I was, it was just taking, <laughs> took a little bit of time. So uh, the UI is built on top of LiveView, which is actually pretty great. I uh, haven't had to write any JavaScript to do any of it, but has helped really drive forward the state of how to actually look at all these different things and slice things up and filter things. And so, um, the unusual part of it is that I didn't make it open source. So Oban itself is open source, Apache license, just like most of the other um, core Elixir kind of things. But the UI is private. Um, it's currently in a private beta while I work things out. 
Um, but the goal is eventually to license that. Um, the exact terms of that I haven't worked out, but um, to license it so that people can help fund the open source um, open while getting a really well polished, very useful, you know, piece to actually visualize their jobs and. I mean, it does more than visualize the jobs, I guess. You can filter through things and kill things and stop them and pause them and do all those, do all the things that you'd expect out of uh, some enterprise tool. And if uh, people go to open.dev, they can kind of see a little, uh, like what the current in incarnation of the UI looks like right now, just kind of get an idea. It's real That's pretty. Really cool. Yeah, it is pretty. Yeah, I've, uh, there's so much, it, it's, it's hard to balance um, fixing bugs adding features, and then polishing that all at the same time. But um, it's so much more fun being able to just watch things go by. And as I mentioned before, anything you see on there is totally fake. It's generated by Faker. It can be pretty hilarious at times. I love Faker. <laughs> but initially, people sent me private messages like, you're, you're making your clients public information. Like, because <laughs> there were emails and stuff. I'm like, those are totally fake emails. <laughs> it's not real at all. But I like that it was believable enough that it seemed, I mean, all the jobs are actually based on other systems I've worked on. They're real jobs. They just happen to have fake data. So, One of my favorite communities to get involved with these days is the Angular community. There are so many great people there. We've had a lot of them on Adventures in Angular over the last several years. And I really wanted to just highlight people and give you a chance to get to know the flavor and the feel of being around some of these awesome people. We've talked to people on the Angular core team. We've talked to people who have organized the conferences. We've talked to some of the co-hosts that I've had on Adventures in Angular. Nowadays, Aaron Frost is running the show and he's doing the same thing. Typically, he's been doing it at conferences lately, which is a lot of fun. But you get to hear what these people are about and why they care and how they get involved with other people in the Angular community. So if you're looking for that connection in the Angular community and a way to really understand the people who are involved in the Angular community, then go check out My Angular Story. You can find it at myangularstory.com. Well, I'd recently done a project and I was also using Faker. So I'm just dropping a link to the, uh, the Faker library on GitHub that I really liked using. And uh, it's fun because it's like, just like you say, you want to be able to create uh, massive amounts of data. Uh, sometimes you're just wanting to kind of load test. Like if I put like 10,000 records in this table, and, I, and I'm filtering and sorting and searching, how does it respond? And, you know, having uh, unique data that, you know, that sounds realistic in terms of uh, like what you might actually expect to see uh, makes it a lot more believable and the tests are more realistic. So I just plus one for that. Yeah. When, um, when I initially put it up, when I initially put up the demo kind of thing, um, before I had told people about it, there was actually a small bug just in how I configured things. So the faker part was generating jobs, but the other part, Open wasn't running to actually process the jobs. And I had done it over the weekend. So when I went back and looked at it, it had generated 2.8 million jobs. I was like, well, this is a perfect test. <laughs> I'll just, now I'll turn it on and let's see how long it's going to take to work through these 2.8 million jobs in the queue. And it did. It took a while. But uh Thanks to the ability just to go in and scale up the queues. Let's go. Let's jack them all up to 200, 300. See how fast it goes. It worked well. Can you, cool. can you increase the queue size from the UI? Not yet. There, uh, there's something actively. So the design is all there and it's 
in progress right now. So you can pause, resume, and scale the UI, sorry, scale the queue size from the UI, and it will scale all of them at the same time, and you'll get a little instant update that it's changed. That's cool. Yeah, that's sweet. So I know that the uh, UI is currently available under beta access. Uh, if I wanted to join and check that out, is that something that you're uh, taking invites or uh, requests for? Yes, um, there's very little gating to it. Um, so I initially published something or posted something on the forum just saying, send over your GitHub information and um, an email address and a little bit of what you're gonna be using it for and I'll invite you to the beta. And so that is still pretty much true. Um, the only thing that I should have put in there as a caveat, since I had this request a few times, is if what you're doing, um, what you're using Open4 is open source, uh, you can't share the key. It's supposed to be a secret. So um, that hasn't happened so far, but that's something I probably should have put in the initial one. Um, but uh, on the open.dev site, which I also have open.pro, um, which I didn't know existed until just recently, so it seemed more, more official. But um, there's a form on the bottom that you can go into the form and fill in the request access, and it just sends an email. And so it's all, it's all very manual. Does it use Open to send that email? <laughs> uh, it it will very soon. So that's one of the that's another use case. Is that um, I guess that kind of it never got a recipe, but it came out of somebody asking. They're like, we happen to manage everything using prefixes or schemas, different schemas in in Postgres. Do you support that? And so initially, Open didn't. It would only work inside of the public schema. Um, but if you wanted to put it in, say, some sort of private one, or you wanted to isolate it from everything else, it didn't support that. So, um, But it does now, and it has for several months. So, um, of course, open.dev is running open in a way that's what powers the beta. Um, but then there will be another one. I have the ability to have multiple open supervision trees that are totally isolated. And so one can be private and is going to send real emails. And the other one is just running all of the other fake data and they don't communicate at all. That's really cool. I don't think I've ever used different schemas in Postgres, and that seems like a, a good use case. People do, apparently. I've, I've used them for uh, uh, white labeling or uh, what apartmentizing. Yes, I think that was the exact use case um, that, that prompted it, that they wanted to run totally separate queues. Well, not queues, multiple queues, but broken up by client or customer. It turns out that's important if you have SLAs per customer. Yes. Yeah, and then they make it really easy because then you could tune down those people who don't pay very much. They don't, do, they don't get very many background workers. Then you upgrade, you, like, you move a little knob. Do, 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 do. For the record, the word is multi-tenancy and not apartmentizing. <laughs> uh, yeah, someone probably uh, uh, tell you that on Twitter. Yeah, there's a Ruby gem called apartment, and that was all that came to mind when my brain blanked. Yep. All right, so I'd love to hear any uh, features of Open that you're particularly proud of. Uh, I think the part that I'm probably most proud of is how unique jobs work. Um, so a lot of it is you get somebody who's requesting a particular feature, and then you might have an idea of how to do it, and you sort of spike on that idea, and then you realize that you didn't handle three edge cases. And so then you have to go and ruminate about it and then kind of come back and try to distill it down to what is the simplest possible thing I can configure here and have it handle 
all the use cases that I want. And so in that particular case, so for unique jobs, there are three things that you can control, which are the arguments and the period of time. Okay, that's two things. Uh, but <laughs> And it will construct a query dynamically that fits all of those constraints. And I think it turned out to be a great feature addition um, and a very solid UI. Um, but one of the other things is that I, I like in Elixir how we have, it's not totally dynamic. And when I have the compiler catch things, I love it. So I tend to use structs more than maps purely for that reason, just because I'll typo something. And so one of the things that Open does is when you start, so if you use the use worker macro, it will validate all of the arguments that go into that. And that includes all of the unique job arguments. So if I put in a period of, say, negative one, it won't accept that, and it actually won't even compile. It'll tell you there's a compiler error. You tried to give an invalid value for your unique arguments. And so I, I think that's the one that's best. Well, thanks for coming on and talking to us about this. Uh, I think we should probably move on to picks. Mark, do you have a pick? Yes. Uh, so there's this fun Twitter account that I follow that's uh, Programming Wisdom. It's uh, at Code Wisdom on Twitter. And there's this fun quote that I just love and I, I love to share with uh, coworkers and people. And it says, weeks of coding can save you hours of planning. And I just like that because it's true, right? You, you know, if you just spend a little bit more time thinking about something, uh, you can avoid a lot of hassle. So there's a lot of fun little uh, bits of wisdom and uh, quotes from various people in, in computing history, some famous, some less so, at least less to me. But it's a fun one to follow. So that's it for me. All right, Eric, so how about you? Oh, no, I'm interrupting this. I'm doing I'll, it. I'll let you finish this out, okay? <laughs> All right, so uh, there's a blog post called How to Write a Commit Message, and I just, I just think it's neat. It has a very, very basic guideline, which is write a concise message starting with a capitalized verb in the root form, explaining what you did to the code and what the code does to the software. And so an example of this would be edit style to implement new button design or upgrade package to remove vulnerabilities. And I like it because uh, a, lot of, a lot of suggestions are basically so verbose that no one's going to do them. An example is a, a buddy of mine worked on a project where someone wrote a git commit linter that literally made like making their commits take about as much time as writing the software, which is, which is good, except for it, the, the, the company failed because nobody could do stuff. So yeah. anyway, so uh, I thought this was a good article and it's a nice like middle ground between we're writing Linux and you know, we're just putting did some stuff in the commit message. So anyway, that's it. Eric, do you want to go? Yeah. So two weeks ago, I guess, I don't know. There was a new criterion collection. I like kind of following what they, they put out and they put out a Godzilla, uh, like mega pack, I guess, um, from the night of the original 1954 movie up to 1975, which I guess is called the Showa era, but we bought this pack and now we're starting a, uh, Godzilla Friday, night movie so we're, we're gonna kind of roll through all of these and just see how uh most likely how bad they are but they should be fun bad so i'm looking forward to this i didn't know there were that many godzillas that you could actually have a whole theme <laughs> there's yeah so there's like 30 of them uh there's 15 in this pack and then that's, that's just to 1975 and then there's also at least like 20 from like the 90s <laughs> Um, so there are a lot of Godzilla movies. I uh, cannot comment on the quality of most of them, <laughs> but we all know. Yes. <laughs> awesome. And Parker, do you have something for us? 
Yes. So I have a couple of picks. One, I'm pretty sure has been picked before, but um, I think it needs to be picked again, if so. Uh, and that's the Rust programming language book, which is great. I mean, learning Rust is a pretty good thing to do just to kind of expand yourself if you're not used to systemy kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm not. Um, but it is an amazingly well done technical book that I think sets the standard for how other programming introduction books work. Uh, it just, it goes between everything between being kind of a reference to being a tutorial to getting started and having actual products, uh, projects where you're writing something that will feel like you really wrote something. Um, and so it's wonderful to go through just for that. And my second pick is recently, uh, we were dropping our daughter off in Virginia for school and we spent a lot of time there. And um, I tend to, I, I like whiskey a fair bit, um, as anybody who's familiar with scotch might have gathered from the name Oban. And there are a number of distilleries in, in Virginia and there's one called Copper Fox, which I find just amazing. And so it's very much like an American scotch. And so that's also me kind of thumbing my nose to, to scotch and <laughs> picking an American one. So Copper Fox, pretty great. Well, thank you, Parker, for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with you. If people want to follow you online or get, get in touch with you, how should they go do that? Um, so I do technically have a Twitter with my wife, but we never post. Um, so if you'd like to follow, um, post somewhat regularly on the blog, and that's at soren2.com. I'm on Slack fairly often if you have any questions about Open, And I'm also on the forum. So if you have any questions, that's a great place to, to post them as well. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.